I'm Shreen Bhatia, and you're listening to the Modern Retail Podcast, where I speak with executives leading the reinvention of retail. We've had a lot of conversation on this podcast about investing, about VCs, and so we're hearing from somebody from the other side of the table. Matt Higgins is here. Hi, Matt. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you. Matt, you just taught a course at Harvard, so I hear, about helping people or getting people to understand what it really takes to launch a direct-to-consumer brand and how to be a founder. I think that's fascinating for so many reasons, but before we even get into why, I want to understand a little bit about why you decided to teach this course and what exactly the course is about. Okay, great questions. Um, I've done a decent amount of investing in the direct-to-consumer space, and uh, the genesis for the course was I kept encountering founders who have a great idea and are operating on potentially old assumptions that haven't been updated in a while, which we can get to in a moment, Mm -hmm. but from maybe the Warbury Parker era. And there were areas of competency and topics that they didn't have mastery over that I felt made their life harder. And a lot of these founders were coming from some of the top business schools. And I kept thinking, what did you get for your degree? <laughs> you know, you spent all this money and you haven't really litigated to Amazon or not to Amazon. And just all these topics that were not necessarily academic per se, but really important, hyper-practical. And I thought, would, doesn't it make sense that these topics be covered in a business school environment? That was, that was the epiphany is, uh, to, to try to maybe truncate the learning curve. That's, it's it's really interesting because I do think, you know, obviously this business schools go through kind of their own um, their own evolutions in this. I mean, obviously, like 10 or 15 years ago, everyone who went to a business school, especially some of the business schools really focused on finance. I think there was a time at which it was sort of really focused on launching and founding tech companies. And it's interesting to me that we're even having this conversation about how much hotter it's become to launch essentially a consumer company. Consumer companies weren't that interesting to right, right. B-school grads, were they? No, what? no, they're not. It's, good, it's a great point. They, it was uh, probably 10 years ago, not nearly as sexy and as exciting to be launching a consumer company, right? You certainly yeah. didn't need to go to business school for it. Right. Um, but what's amazing about Harvard, um, to their credit, uh, it's like, where does this type of program fit? And Harvard has these programs called SIPs, which are these intensive, week-long courses Mm -hmm. that are covered between the first and second semester of business school that enables you to go really deep, but at the same time practical on topics. And I started having these uh, conversations with Len Schlesinger, who's been associated with the school since 1975. He's a giant. He's on the board of Restoration Hardware, brilliant, about, you know, could we work together to create an intensive program that could take the DTC space and deconstruct it from start to finish so that anybody who is either interested in investing or building a company would walk out at least knowing 10 things that they couldn't otherwise have ascertained while at business school. That was the objective. Right. And, um, and do it in a way that was in engaging to sustain people's attention for an entire week. And that's what we worked on. It ended up being 22 classes over four days with 29 guest speakers covering every single thing our crazy brains could come up with. So why, so why is it so, I don't know, sexy? I'm going to use the word sexy, but why is it so sexy to suddenly be a consumer goods founder? This is a great question. I, well, it's, we're, 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 going, we're, we're having a little bit of a, of a backlash against DTC, right? That the term is kind of irrelevant. There's no such thing as DTC. So that's in vogue now to dismiss the entire space, which also is not true. And my view is DTC is a launch vertical, first and foremost, that no one's going to survive very long without an omni-channel strategy. I think that's become more obvious and, and proven out. But to dismiss the entire space to say that it hasn't really revolutionized consumer goods is also not true, right? You had this period of stagnant innovation from 1923 to 1983 where the same category killers controlled 
categories, Coca-Cola and so forth, right? And we're talking in consumer goods. Right, we're talking in consumer goods. I said, but what DTC has enabled um, upstart upstart brands to do is to have an intimate conversation one-to-one with their customer and bypass everything about the supply chain and about the, you know, about the uh, retail, the retail chain. And that is not, that's not nothing, right? There, there is no hymns 15 years ago. And if you deconstruct what, what is a hymns, it's talking about a taboo topic to an entire group of people who were, you know, harboring a desire to address a problem, but had no outlet to do it. Mm-hmm. They used the ability to go one-to-one with that customer to bring that topic into the light. You can't dismiss that and say that that's nothing. So mm-hmm. the purpose of the class, to take it back, was to update the ca- the space from 2010 to 2020 mm-hmm. to say, what, you know, what were the original assumptions that made this hot and exciting back then? I think the number one was, you know, hacking customer acquisition through the arbitrage of buying cheap ads on Facebook, right? right. And that's not the case anymore. <laughs> and, you know, and on and on and on. Retail's dead. No, it's not. Hell sure. with Amazon. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you'll, you, you better be careful. So it was to update all those topics, but at the same time, not say that, that DTC is not a thing. It definitely is a thing. It's just it's evolved. So when, I mean, you know, obviously you've touched costs, but more importantly, you've invested in lots of DTC companies. Um, you've also advised and worked with a lot of just startups in your entire career. I am curious on kind of, the different factors that have contributed, and I'd like to dig a little deeper into some of the things you just mentioned. Because one thing is, look, it's just easy now to start a company that sells directly to a customer. It's a Shopify effect. It's the network effect of all that. Secondly, then, at the time it was a lot of these companies really kind of blew up, to your point, Facebook inventory was cheaper. Instagram, a lot of these brands were basically built on it. And thirdly, um, there was actually people who wanted to fund these people. There were actually investors who said, actually, yeah, we, we will totally fund an ED pill or we'll totally fund a hair, hair loss product or bed sheets or lamps or mattresses, whatever it was. So the number one part, okay, there's a lot of companies in this space now. It almost feels like every category has been disrupted. Are we about to run out of things to disrupt? That's a great question. One of the uh, terms that came out of the class, I don't know if it's novel, but uh, we spend a lot of time is this notion of sleepy TAMs, sleepy total addressable markets that were just sitting there waiting for uh, an enterprising MBA student to figure out and disrupt it. You know, mm-hmm. Casper, one could argue, is that a sleepy TAM, the ability to go ahead and have, you know, mattresses sent to you in a box and whatnot, but these massive categories where uh, that hadn't been challenged. And some of the class debate focused on, is that over? Have we basically disrupted all things that were ever meant to be disrupted? And my answer to that is absolutely not and never. <laughs> like, so to to use a, a current case study, um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, if you've heard of Magic Spoon, right? Right. So I'm an investor in Magic Spoon. Mm-hmm. Full, full disclosure, but and um, so people um, who don't know Magic Spoon cereal, but really fancy cereal, really fancy cereal, keto, <laughs> dri- keto yeah, keto driven cereal, definitely on trend. But but of all places, not to spend your time, the cereal aisle would be top, right? Growth had been stagnant. Conventional wisdom is that, you know, we're not into cereal anymore. We're we're doing whatever we're doing. And, uh, you know, two young enterprising entrepreneurs says, I don't think so. I just think that a, a few things about cereal have not been updated. Number one product, right? That pe- people are nostalgic for cereal. It's just as nothing that speaks to you. Everything is still high sugary and whatnot. So for, let's invent a great product, which they worked on. They, they uh, you know, they came up with, you know, low carbs. I don't even need to explain. You can imagine what a keto cereal tastes like, right? But then they said, we want the brand 
began to be nostalgic and whimsical and reminiscent of all the things that you loved about Frosted Flakes and uh, and Tricks are for Kids. I'm trying to remember yeah. the name of the brand. Um, so <laughs> and all I this, think their whole thing was remember those Saturday mornings. Right, remember right? those Saturday. So they right. took two concepts. One, you know, on-trend cereal. People are still interested. They're still on the go. And two, let's build a brand that reminds me of growing up. Let's combine those. And rather than lobby Whole Foods or anyone else to give me distribution, we'll just tell our story directly to, to consumers. And fast forward, they're at a million dollars a month runway within, you know, four months and whatnot. So uh, who would have thought? And I just think that that, that innovation cycle is never going to end. And, and here's the reason why. Anywhere there is groupthink group in consumer goods, there is a sleepy TAM waiting to be disrupted by a DTC company that launches digitally and then quickly morphs into all the typical you know, distribution channels, retail, storefront. And that's the evolution of thinking. Mm -hmm. This notion that you could have DTC businesses that stay entirely digitally native and they could both get funded and exit. Well, that part is not true, but it's kind of obvious looking back. Like you're going to go where the customer is. Mm -hmm. So that department's been updated. But I think it's a mistake to dismiss the category. I think it's amazing that you could come along and challenge taboo thinking around ED or you can go ahead and create an entirely new cereal brand, launch it right away and get scale. That That's not going away. Absolutely. And I think, and I think, I don't, the actual concept of direct to consumer, I think, yes, of course, it's sound. And it's actually very, it's very 2020, it's very 21st century. It speaks to where a consumer is. I'm curious about you as an investor or just as somebody who works in business. Do you look at these clusters? And I find these clusters of brands really interesting now. I think we saw a big cluster in, um, in bras and underwear, we got like 90 different companies who are all doing DTC bras. That's it. And then we saw another one in swimwear. We did start seeing one in mattresses. Think at what at one point there were like hundred and seventy five, yeah. right? Yeah, we covered. We did an original case actually in the course on uh, Casper, which is interesting. Yeah, which is right. and I and I do want to talk a little bit about that because I think you see clusters. Why you see clusters is uh, is an interesting one too. I mean, you were you were just in an MBA class, but a lot of people, you know, they're reading the case, same case yeah. studies. They're sitting well, there coming up with right. great great ideas. But as an investor, you sit and say, okay, I really need the next idea. Serial was a good example, which is why you invested in it. That is really different because we can't, how many, again, swimwear companies can the market support? How many right. bra companies, how many mattress companies? You saw that actually shake out a different way. Is there a risk of kind of overcrowding certain sectors and what sectors are they? Yeah, there's definitely risk of over overcrowding sectors. I mean, a, a couple of phenomena work. One, there is no original idea in the universe. So if you had an idea that you think is original, you're about to have your heart broken. <laughs> yeah. And that has been proven throughout, you know, history, history millions <laughs> and millions of years. So that's point one. And two, people fish where the fishes are, right? So as soon as someone's identified a category, uh, but there's definitely clusters. And so what do I do with that information? When I come up with a, uh, I'm presented with a great idea, I try to find whoever else is working on it is is the point. Mm -hmm. And then I apply my filter like I do to any business, right? It, was the founder put on this earth to make this idea a reality? Because that's number one is the gating issue, right? I find it happens in MBA schools a lot. Someone will intellectualize themselves to a really great idea because they discovered a sleepy Tam and they want the answers to be on the spreadsheet. And then you spend some time with the founder and think like, oh, there's just no way you're going to pull this off. <laughs> so that's that's right. the filter. But sure. But in the DTC space, it's no different. I first look to see who else is working on it and does the founder have what it takes? And then is this business big enough to make it worth my time? I find a lot of founders bypass that question because they're afraid of the answer. Most of the time, the answer is no. 
-hmm. that if you project out the course of your life and realize the other things you're going to have an opportunity to do, the thing you're about to do may not be worth your time. So the biggest filter I'm often applying is this is great for you and it's novel, but it's not investable. And that last part of whether something is investable, uh, VCs are applying with a much sharper filter than they were before. Yeah, absolutely. And and I do want to talk a little bit about that sort of VC DTC calculus, because I do think it's changing. But going back to sort of this three points we laid out about why it is easier and the barriers have come down to starting a business. Kind of covered on the first one. The second one has changed. Facebook's no longer as yep. um, as cheap as it was. How does that affect sort of the calculus, again, for you, both as when you were talking to these would-be founders, but also for you as an investor, when you look and realize that a lot of these companies that essentially existed almost purely, or actually at least 80%, because they existed at the time at which they could have really cheap Facebook inventory, now can no longer do that. What are the other metrics you look for? What are well, other ways to grow? Well, let's talk about that. So so the arbitrage of Facebook and Instagram doesn't exist, although there will be another. There always is another. It's going to be t- TikTok. TikTok or, or something else that <laughs> sure. we're not imagining or sure. LinkedIn. We'll figure out how to So there'll morph. be alternatives. There'll be an alternative, but um, but that I don't think is that the ability to acquire customers cheaply is not the essence of the DTC phenomenon, phenomenon, in my opinion. That was a tactic. The ability to create brand affinity quickly and personalization at scale is what sets a DTC apart from a company whose only ability to reach a customer is through an intermediary, which is Whole Foods, right? So that hasn't changed. So what I look for then, if you're if you're applying that filter, um, is, are you solving a real problem? And does your ability to communicate with that with the customer directly and intimately going to increase your adoption? That's what I'm sort of analyzing. I know it's very convoluted, right? But if you use Hims as a perfect example yeah. and you admit it into evidence that, hey, there's a real problem here, sure. well, it makes sense that a DTC business would be uniquely able to have that conversation in a safe, approachable Absolutely. kind of way, and, which is why you have, and I'm throwing names out, but the Emma Shines of the world, mm-hmm. right? Who from, we've had on this podcast who, right, from, before. Right, yeah. who has a unique ability to synthesize a problem and communicate in a comfortable way at scale. That is what I'm looking for. Is that is that underlying thesis around a DTC available? It is interesting to think about kind of, I wonder too, if like real estate, if the arbitrage is sort of basically just moved over to real estate because it is cheaper now, especially in certain, obviously in certain markets. And, you know, we've, we've had uh, founders on this podcast before who've basically said, yeah, I've, st- uh, well, me, like I started a brand when Facebook inventory is actually more expensive than I thought. But guess what? Real estate's really cheap. So maybe it's not even alternatives on social media or digital. It's actually alternatives in real life. Yeah. So so I, so I let's stick with that for a second. So yes, real estate's, real estate's cheaper, but you still don't have the fast ramp up and you still have the same build out costs you always had. So I don't believe we'll ever use the word cheap with real estate. But if you're looking at it from a transactional standpoint of, oh, uh, is it, it's now more expensive to use digital acquisition than it was before. So that's not viable because it's too much competition, it's still very inexpensive to use digital to create community. Mm-hmm. That I think is the most. Somebody, a brand like Recess, I don't know what it costs Recess to acquire customers, but Recess is a CBD drink for those who don't mm-hmm. know. Go grab one right now as you're listening to me so you can relax. <laughs> um, but Recess is building community at scale quickly using Instagram and all its social tools. And those tools are relatively free, right? So that I think that hasn't, it's important not to overlook that point. Okay. We're going to come back to Recess and all of these things after a quick ad break. Okay. So we're talking about what it really takes to launch a company today. Um, you mentioned earlier that DTC has become a dirty word. And I'm kind of interested in kind of following that train of thought down. Because for at one point, it seemed like, you know, just putting the word direct to consumer in on your website or on your Twitter bio would land you a shit ton of press. You would definitely get at least a second look from investors. You'd get second look from consumers. It was very hot. And suddenly now... 
I mean, what, like nine months later was saying it's a dirty word. That's probably the fastest kind of downfall <laughs> of a phrase I've seen. Um, nothing got... By the way, thank God I named, we named the course Moving Beyond DTC or else I wouldn't even be able to show my face. Yeah, otherwise, what podcast. if you just said DTC? No, I'd be uh, humiliated. They'd all be <laughs> throwing it's bananas over. at you. It'd yeah. be terrible. So, so why? Why did this happen? How did this happen? Uh, well, one, for whatever reason, human beings love to call, you know, call the beginning of a correction, right? We never want to be caught unaware, so we're insecure. So I think we have this constant desire to figure out that the happy days are going to come to an end. So there's a little bit of that. And two, I think it's because there are elements of it did, didn't make sense, like in every sort of, I wouldn't call this a bubble, but I would call it inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of them was the notion that if you have no path to profitability, that's okay, because you'll just you know acquire customers and some big you know P&G will come along and buy you. That's obviously not true. So I think it's just a proxy for the fact there were elements that did need to be adjusted and therefore it's like pox on all your houses, right? Like all DTCs mm. are bad. And I think we've seen that cycle play out. It played out in 1998, 1999, same exact thing. Well, then it was about Mindshare. I had the privilege of working at Cosmo.com, which was an amazing company, by the way, delivered everything to you in under an hour. Cosmo was a fundamentally amazing idea, which is now called Amazon. And uh, <laughs> so same thing's happening with DTCs, which is why... Um, to Harvard's credit, like let's do this course. Let's explain how this phenom- how this concept has evolved from 2010 to 2020. And we basically took every element of it and said, okay, what's really happening here? Oh, the digital arbitrage is now over, et cetera. Retail, it turns out, is not dead. You need an omni-channel. We need a bridge like Showfields, which I don't know if you've had mm-hmm. them on your show. So we just wanted to go through each area and explain and update it. So where does um – where do we kind of go from here, especially with that, especially with that physical space conversation? Because I think, yes, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of a lot of the best founders out there have realized now that they need a physical part of their business, um, and they're doing it in various different ways. Where does this shake out? Are malls coming back, or is it going to be something else? So, great question. I, I think um, one recognition that DTC is actually a launch vertical and enables you to get brand affinity at scale quickly, uh, but you're going to need an omni-channel strategy at the beginning in your pitch deck. Not like, we'll figure retail out. Right. So two, but going straight from a DTC brand to, you know, your own dirty lemon stores, I'm not sure entirely works either. So there's going to need to be some kind of bridge of a concept. So I don't know exactly who the competitor is at Neighborhood Goods or is at Showfields, but I think I understand the concept, which is the 10-year leases aren't going to work for small upstart digitally native brands, mm-hmm. um, you know, fixed commitments, expensive build-outs, all these other elements need to change. And the way to do that is to have an aggregator of sorts. So if you look at Showfields, not only are they are an aggregator of small DTC brands, they're also reinventing the experience and making shopping great. Mm-hmm. I don't think people aren't shopping as much because shopping's not a great experience. I think it's really easy to go on Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. So so I think the, um, the landlords are going to have to adapt by having much more flexible terms. And there is going to be a shakeout of whether it's a show feels that becomes the new department store or landlords become those that are willing to master lease their spaces and put 10 brands in some curated way. I'm not sure, but um, but one thing has definitely changed. I asked Ben Lair this question. What percentage of founders recognize, and I asked Showfields the same question, recognize from the beginning that you're going to need to go to uh, retail? And they pegged the number around 50%. 
So it may be understood on this podcast that you're mm-hmm. going to need to have some type of physical touch point, but we're still only halfway there from founders understanding. Oh, completely. And and I think it is interesting, but it's, it seems to be like only some of them because, I, you know, we had um, we had Caitlin Strandberg um, on the show from Lair Hippo. And I think they were like, for the first time, we've started asking like, hey, hold on, what's your physical retail strategy? But also right after that, what's your Amazon strategy? Yeah. That's a question that didn't exist sort of right yeah. on day one. That was my favorite class, but then I was a little concerned at, at HBS because, you know, Amazon, right? just seems like hoi polloi. <laughs> it's beneath <laughs> us to be talking about. But we brought in uh, someone who used to work at VaynerMedia with Gary huh. Vaynerchuk to talk Amazon strategy. It was probably top five most popular uh, presentations of the entire week. That- so what are the misconceptions there? You mentioned earlier, like at first, it seems almost like hoi polloi. Is that still, especially among founders, that's still like, well, that's not for us. We're no, no. here. I would mention so, hoi polloi and so far, it's not an academic topic, sure. right? But but I, I, the uh, the uh, <laughs> most interesting is that there is no definitive answer. It is absolutely case by case. Mm. Like to understand Amazon, my number one advice to a founder, if you want to understand Amazon, you have to get so deep into the weeds. I can't give you a hard and fast rule. Like if you have a strong brand. You don't need to be on Amazon because it's defensible and you know, and whatnot. There are no hard and fast rules. You need to get into the weeds. Gary's at Gary Vaynerchuk spoke to the class. His advice was, I want you to walk out of here and sell 50 items of anything on Amazon so you understand how it works. But the the alchemy of Amazon actually changes the outcome. And what do I mean by that? Seven photos for your, you know, for your product. Like Amazon is hyper technical about how you actually execute. So we put together some learnings, uh, which are probably too many to share on mm-hmm. this uh, podcast about how to sort of synthesize whether you should be or you should not. You, you should not be. So when you're looking, then okay. So say it's Magic Spoon, and Magic Spoon is like, okay, I don't know if I have an Amazon strategy. I don't know if it should. What sort of what calculus are you looking at again as somebody who's investing in them and obviously is advising them? What? How do you decide, like, is this worth your time and is it worth their time to then go down that route? Because you're right. Getting it right is really hard. You need somebody who's an expert. You need to understand the seven product pages. You need to understand A-plus pages. It's not easy. Um, So you better be committed if you're going to do it. Well, so I'm first looking at the quality of the decision making. One, are you asking the right questions? Like if a dis- founder comes to me and it dismissed Amazon outright because they know everything, that that's a big you know red flag to me. So Ma- Magic Spoon is a great example because they're debating that right now in real time. And, and as part of the course, we presented them the number of searches on Amazon for, for their <laughs> serial name of those looking for Magic Spoon and presumably buying a competitor. And then searches for keto cereal, that's one. I think one of the big elements that came out of it, if you can come up with a, a bundle package it's only be available on Amazon so that you can, you know, build, build, build customer loyalty and you can see what's going on. And but I first am I'm asking the question, not should you be on Amazon or not be on Amazon? Are you asking whether you should be or not, or have you dismissed it entirely? I'm looking at the quality of the decision making. Okay. Because I don't have a perfect answer for each every single every and that's why we actually broke down seven different companies, because every single uh, company was different. And we went back to the sure. founders to ask them why are you not on Amazon? But so many times it just ends up feeling like this is just a defensive strategy. Like the only reason and you mentioned Dirty Lemon earlier. The only reason Dirty Lemon is on Amazon is because other people were taking their keywords and then they had to be on it. So nine times out of 10, it seems like people are going on Amazon in order for them not to get screwed, excuse my language, by somebody else on Amazon. It's not because Amazon's really offering them some kind of brand building or amazing marketing opportunity or amazing even sales opportunity. I'm sure it will, but 
That's not what founders are thinking. I think that's true. I think that's way more. And you more. just mentioned it too. No, it's like, great, Magic Cereal is going to have to go in there because someone else is typing right. in Magic all, Spoon. Or right? Allbirds. I mean, look what happened with Allbirds. Look what ha- right. exactly. no, no, I would say that Amazon generally s- strikes fear in the heart of most founders. It, it, is, <laughs> it, is lar- it is largely defensive, but so what, right? I mean, that's just the reality. Like, yeah. it's defensive. Maybe it's okay not to be precious about it. Uh, no, I, we can't be precious about it because you, you can get wiped out. Look at Duracell. <laughs> oh, Duracell is a great example. Yep. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about, like I said, the VCDC calculus. I mean, one thing that we've heard a lot on from various founders um, is sort of, you know, when they've sort of looked for investing partners and investors. And uh, one thing that's kept coming up this year especially has been we've got to grow sustainably. And for a lot of people, it felt like the the huge numbers of just the dollars that were going into, again, consumer goods startups, DTCs, whatever they were called, um, also resulted in some pretty lofty aspirations and the pretty big goals. Because again, you're investors, you want a company that was investable. And that led to, in a lot of cases, lots of money being burnt again on Facebook, lots of money going out on marketing, just kind of unsustainable kind of customer acquisition, really high churn, but it didn't matter as long as it was growing, growing, growing. And a lot of founders have come back and said that a large part of the issue has been that founders went after that and chased these aspirations that just wouldn't were not going to happen and burnt their companies in the process. Are people changing? Are people thinking differently now in general about kind of what it means to invest in consumer companies? They're not tech companies. They're different. And that they need to be thinking about them differently. Does it feel like sort of, I don't know, a, a more calmer period is coming to the market? It's such a, that's a great question. It's it's hard to peg who started the fire, right? Like, is Someone it, did. Right. Is it, did some founder pr- propose that we can have massive growth rates if only we had $10 million to go ahead and acquire customers. Well, you were hearing and, $1 billion valuations. It gets pretty It gets right. pretty tempting when you see those kinds of one and well, two this, hymns nonetheless. Right. This is why it's it's kind of a mild shakeout, right? Like uh, no one's going to get killed in the making of this movie because on the one hand, founder, the pressure on founders to go ahead and propose these astronomical growth rates by using your equity dollars, which is very expensive acquisition, to go ahead and supercharge our growth rate. We're going to get some silly multiple and exit. That's gone. And then investors are now much more rational and logical and patient about seeing a steady growth trajectory that's sustainable. Ben Lair talks about it. Great. Ben Lair is one of the most thoughtful investors out there in the space. And he was talking about, I don't want to see, I want to see like a million dollars of sales in a year and a half, you know, like I don't know. <laughs> he threw out numbers that were seemingly anemic because he wants to see the strength of community. He wants to see you sell product to a customer who's passionate about you that wasn't acquired through some type of growth hacking. So it's time he for wants, a different metric. It is. It's time for, which I don't know what that metric is. Right? <laughs> I, no, nobody, maybe I don't think, no, but maybe it's I would say, time. I'm going to call it intensity of community, like IOC, you know, or <laughs> <laughs> like we, we might have to make it up yeah, ourselves. You know, something, I like that, it. something that measures brand affinity, because again, that's at the core of what makes DTC. Well, that's why Glossier right? works. Well, look at Everlane, right? Sure. Everlane, this notion of going ahead and talking and making customers passionate about something that they weren't even sure they needed to be uh, passionate about by giving them the information. Here's where your product is made. And then building an entire ethos around it. That's what Everlane, Everlane's not about growth hacking. Everlane is about a mission and letting that mission resonate. So so back to what do I look for? If I could find mission-driven DTCs that are, you know, unlocking something that we all didn't even know we needed to care about, right? That that That's something that a DTC is uniquely positioned to be able to stoke, which would be very hard to do if you were launching at like Target, right? Like how am I, I going to do sure. end caps to sell a story? Like how yeah. am I going to get, how am I going to reach people? In which case, that's great. Then don't look for 
investing, kind right. of run it on your own, is, and that's okay. It was one of the exciting things. You know, Bolin Branch, Bolin Branch is linens, right? And we had Scott Tannen at the course at HBS, and I was amazed that Scott has built this incredible business in the linen space, and by actually inventing his own supply chain, by doing what others <laughs> purport to do but have not done, he's done something revolutionary, but he actually hasn't told the story. And I was saying to him, interesting, you've reversed into, you've been a successful DTC with actually building the mission component of what you're doing. Imagine what you could do if you told the story of how you've really changed. Well, some people would argue that better that than all the DCs out there that seem to have really gotten the story right. Really good stories. I'm not, well, that's what I was saying. I'm not being hypercritical, right. but he, Scott's a little commodity and I love him if you're listening, Scott. <laughs> but but my, my point being, if you can combine mission driven oh, with great sure. product. And so I'm looking for those that are doing it. It's a company called Starface, right? I don't know if it's, uh, that's uh, dealing with acne by making it something that you're actually not embarrassed about, but <laughs> you sort of wear proudly. That's a really smart body positive idea that they stumbled upon. I imagine there's millions of those still waiting to be disrupted. That's the perfect combination, I think, right. what you're talking about. Exactly. Most people end up just doing just, just branding, right. just the rest what, of it to kind of whatever. back it up. Yeah, and, it's so, and, and, and the holy grail is when the founder story matches, you know, all the way down to the product, right? Like that you were actually motivated. And that's maybe a lot to ask. So mm-hmm. if you're just quasi-passionate about it, or <laughs> at least you have some Genesis story that matches, then it's really great. But if you have all those working in concert, it's still powerful. That's perfect. So what do we do after Casper? Casper is IPO and its effects. And I still think, look, it's obviously people love to kind of, you know, jump on. It's like everyone kept waiting to see like yeah, what the first big IPO I hate would that, be. Right? Everyone's going to attack now. And it wasn't. And DTC Twitter can be pretty, um, pretty sharp. Um, so everyone jumped. Everyone said, okay, this is not as good as we expected. And it wasn't. But what is sort of the effects? I'm more interested in the effects it's going to have. Because I think Casper was largely seen as this bellwether before the IPO on saying, like, oh, here's. Here's like DGC 1.0, you know, to your point, the Sleepy Tam category. Um, really great branding, like fantastic branding, did everything right, had great founders, et cetera, et cetera. So when they go public, we'll finally have a sense of like what it means for a direct-to-consumer brand to go public. And now we know. So what comes next? Uh, great. And, uh, well, I think... Casper's an interesting case because they went so deep into DTC, right? And then 175 competitors, although they weren't the first. They were actually a right. few in. I forgot right. the name of the other ones. There were a few it, others and right. they sort of right. exited. But, but Casper's interesting because you can look at the same time at Purple and see Purple's unit economics and how Purple is pro- is you know profitable sure. effectively, right? So I think Casper's a case uh, of a, a company that, be, that was born as DTC that should have or should morph into attacking the underlying problem that gave birth to it in the first place. That's a, I'm going to unpack that sentence. Um, Casper was born out of a really crappy retail experience where you'd walk in and have a used car salesman Awful. trying to sell you a mattress. Awful. It was uncomfortable. There were like 8 million SKUs and you just, you knew you were going to get ripped off and you were standing on a strip mall in New Jersey, right? So like every bad thing that you could imagine about it. So their solution to that problem though was sending you a mattress in a box with free return policy, right? Like So I'm not actually sure that mattress in a box perfectly match the problem they were solving. They have stumbled upon, though, the a fundamental problem is create a great retail experience. I would ask most people, if you were to buy a mattress, would you prefer to have one sight unseen delivered to your house? Or would you take 30 minutes on a Saturday and go to a great store so you can try it out? I want to try my mattress. So out. they fixed in a way, they, they had the right problem, but they fixed it. They had the wrong solution. They off. had the wrong solution. And so they were and they were funded well, but I don't think it's too late. I think their retail experience is fantastic. Philip Krim is a great CEO. I would actually radically alter the entire playbook. I would look at anywhere there's a Casper and say, I'm not doing free return policy within you know 30 miles because you can come to my retail outlet stay with the problem you were looking to attack so the 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 what i take away from the casper example is always making sure that the, whatever dtc pitch i'm getting sure. is actually 
closely t- tailored to the problem that they're looking to solve. Right? That feels like a completely different company, though. The one you're talking about. I don't know. No, 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 no. Casper has a ton of retail already. They do, but yeah. that's... I don't know. I, I, I like that as the a reins. pivot. Give I love me, that I'm as a gonna, pivot. Well, I'm going to intern there, and I'm going to implement my plan. <laughs> I'm going right. to so walk away from... I'm going to walk away from DZZ, and I'm going to turn Casper into a Sleepy's 2.0. <laughs> Sleepy's 2.0 without the creepy used car Exactly, salesman. exactly. Amazing. Matt, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And that's all for today's episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Pierre BNMA. If you like the show, please head to your iTunes store, search for our show, and leave us a review. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you.